Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Media with Peter Kafka, powered by Digital Media. Before we launch Recode Media as its own podcast, you may have heard Peter over at my podcast, Recode Decode. Here's one of the fantastic interviews he did for Decode. Let's listen. Recode Radio presents Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by Digital Media. I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas, and how they're changing the world we live in. This is our special weekly segment with host Peter Kafka, Recode's Senior Editor and Producer of the Code Media Conference. Joining Peter each week are some of his favorite movers and shakers in the media world. This week, Peter talked to Nick Denton, the founder of Gawker Media, and Jason Epstein, the Managing Director of Columbus Nova, and a new member of Gawker's board. Denton sold a minority share of his company to Epstein's firm as Gawker finds itself fighting a costly legal battle against the professional wrestler Hulk Hogan. You cannot make this stuff up. Here's Peter. Thanks, Kara. I'm here with Nick Denton, runs Gawker Media, and Jason Epstein, who now owns part of Gawker Media. Am I summing that up correctly, Jason? Yep, sounds about right. This was fortuitous. I've been trying to get Nick to do an interview for a while, and, and Nick said, sure. And as it turns out, Nick agreed to do an interview just after Jason via your investment firm, which is Columbus Nova. Columbus Nova Technology Partners. Columbus Nova Technology Partners has now invested in Gawker Media. And you put how much money into the company? Nick is shaking his head no. We're not talking about the financial You're not talking about the financial. We can say that the deal is closed. We're taping this the day after it's closed. I know Gawker Media has a reputation for transparency, but uh, there are limits. You're not going to leak out. There's no memo coming out saying here's the deal, here's the distribution. Nope. We can ask people. So this is interesting, Nick. You've been publicly saying for a while that you're going to need to raise some money. You needed to raise money in, in particular, you said, because you've got a Hulk Hogan trial coming up. So in my mind, when you say I need to go raise money because I'm being sued by a former professional wrestler, that puts you in the position of sort of needing the money more than you might like to have it. It means that you're probably positioning – it seems like you're you're not bargaining from strength when you're going out asking for money. Is that a fair way of assessing it? I think we're bargaining from strength in that we have the largest audience of pretty much any independent media company that's out there and an audience that's actually as pretty much as big as that of Vox Media with a huge amount of investment in it. So I think when we went out, we were going out with the comparisons of Vox and BuzzFeed and Vice, and that's really what investors were looking at. How long did it take to raise this round? How long were you out there for? Look, we, I mean, from our perspective, Gawker is a unique asset. There's only a couple large media, digital media properties that exist this is one of them. It's never raised outside financing. And from our perspective, we were honored to have the opportunity to invest in the company. This is the first media company you've invested in, right? You invested in Rhapsody. I guess that's media-ish, music company, music service yeah, company. Yeah, uh, Rhapsody, invested in Harmonix, invested in 300, which is a music label. So we've, we have some relevant media experience. This is the first digital news business. So Nick Denton comes to you and says, I'm being sued by Hulk Hogan. Um, like sweet. I specialize in dick pics. I'm fighting much deep-pocketed rivals. Uh, could I have some money? How does that pitch go? Well, deep-pocket rivals are easy to fix. Yeah? That doesn't make me blink. And, you know, frankly, that was, well, obviously that was the really fun part of the meeting, and getting to talk about that was super entertainment. It had incredible entertainment value, but it had about zero to do with our attraction to the asset. You know, it's tens of millions of incredibly affluent consumers traffic the site on a regular basis, and they're really attracted to the authenticity of the message that Nick and the entire editorial team stand for. You know, and frankly, 
we were too. Can we go back to Hulk Hogan for a second, though? Because this is – you've said quite publicly you had a whole media tour this Bollea. summer. Terry Bollea. Terry Bollea. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> Mr. Hogan. Um, you said for many months starting last summer saying we're getting sued. Not only are we getting sued by him, we're probably going to lose in Florida court and we may well have to pay tens of millions of dollars, $30 million, $100 million. We don't have that much money. So, Jason, are you signing on and saying we're going to bankroll if, if you end up having to pay <coughs> – Mr. Balea, that, that cash? Well, just before we get into that, what I actually said was that we win this. The law is on our side. Ultimately. The, the facts are on our side. This is a true story about a major public figure. So in any normal circumstance, this wouldn't even be a question. And, oh, we should back up in case you haven't followed this this case very closely. Yeah. He's suing you for privacy, right? <clears throat> yeah. There were, in case you showed a sex tape. He, had, he was part of a Tampa swinger circle. There were three recordings. One of the recordings we got, one of the recordings contains the racist language that ultimately got him fired from the WWE and he didn't want that out. He was embarrassed and that's really the basis. So he's suing you after the fact and again to catch people up you're saying look it's likely that we're going to lose in Florida court and he may well get an award at least temporarily which we cannot pay if it's a significant award. I think, I think the circumstances have changed a little bit since I was kind of quite that pessimistic that you know, I think people have a better sense of who he is uh, as a person and you know, more information has come out, you know, more context to this whole affair. Um, so w- we'll see. I, I think the law and the facts are on our side and so we'll see in, when it comes to trial in March. But Jason, back to you. So you're, you're investing when you don't know where this – and there, any investment has risk. It seems like you're going into a particularly risk risky deal at this point? Look, the First Amendment's been adjudicated pretty clearly over the last 200 years in the American court system. And so really, from my perspective, the outcome is, is plain. And it's really just a time and money question. And, you know, so you, as an investor, that's my job to solve the time and money issues. And it's Nick's job to build a great business So and continue to build a great business. So again, from my perspective, the Hulk Hogan issue, other than... Um, comic value to me um, is really nothing more than a time and money question. And ultimately, you know, the outcome is to any any even casual observer of First Amendment rights, the outcome is perfectly clear. So it's really just time. So let's put Terry Bollea and his sex tape aside and talk about <laughs> the, the notion of investing in a media company in 2016. Right. There was a time when Gawker was sort of the dominant web publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, now there are bigger web publishers. Nick is in a position. It seems like Nick has sort of been um, overtaken by bigger rivals, including the one that I work for at Fox Media. How do you assess sort of his position in the marketplace? Look, again, I think there's only five or six scaled players in the entire market. Gawker's one of them. You know, they have seven properties that cover the media landscape in a pretty interesting, insightful way. They have a very, very definitive voice. And again, I'm speaking purely from an investor's perspective. I think there's a lot of growth opportunity, particularly in how they can tell their same story by incorporating more video, which I think is underexploited. And as I think about over time, if somebody was interested in owning a media property like this, there's very few to choose from. So, Nick, you got to get uh, Jason his money back. You're going to sell the company eventually? I think it will be a, a lot easier for us to get money back for our investors than some of our competitors who've raised hundreds of millions of dollars uh, and you know, have extremely high growth expectations to, to live up to. We've run a lean 
operation here, and we've always looked at the efficiency of our spending. Uh, we are, we are speaking, by the way, in your brand new fancy office. Uh, yeah, what's, brand, what's the decor here? You said brand sort new of fancy steampunk, office, steampunk, but this is more industrial. But it's it's quite fancy. It's it's, it's nice. We do have good taste. Uh, fortunately, taste is cheap. It's either Unfinished it's, it's, it's either within you or it's not. Uh, <laughs> and so I, I make no apologies for the fact that we actually do have some taste. You know, the fact of the matter is that we have accumulated a very large audience with no outside capital up until this point. And so I'm uh, very interested to see like what we can do with a bit of outside capital. I don't want uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't think that we could actually efficiently invest at this point hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, but I think we can very efficiently invest the amount of money that we've got. And why get a, a financial investor like this? Why not go to a News Corp or a Time Warner or NBC Universal and say, well, you're in the media business, we're in the media business, let's figure something out? What I need more than anything else is a creative partner, an advisor, uh, and actually somebody with a little bit of the kind of buccaneering spirit that really motivates what we do. Uh, sort of somebody who can um, who can look at risks, look at benefits, do a rational analysis, uh, and you know, actually make decisions. And uh, I, we found that in Jason and Jason, found that just, in Columbus Nova. He just called you a pirate, I think. Bucking cool I've been, been called worse. <laughs> okay, good. I sort of like that, actually. All right. So on that note, why don't we let you out of this very <laughs> warm you. room, and Thank then Nick you. and I will keep talking. Thanks, Jason. Thank you very much. You're very nice. Appreciate it. If you're enjoying this interview, you won't want to miss Code Media 2016. Last year, Nick Denton joined us. So did Chelsea Handler. So did Mark Cuban. Let that image sink into your head for a minute. And now you can listen to some audio of that. I mean, when we started AudioNet in 1995, we started saying bits are bits. The money is still in TV. Facebook is clearly the strongest and most powerful. We can't afford to be dependent on them because we have something that we want to do. It was too much attention. I wasn't excited to see me anymore, so I could only imagine how other people felt. Fun, right? This year we're going to have John Skipper from ESPN, Shane Smith from Vice Media, a bunch of other folks, some of whom we have yet to announce but are pretty cool. You can view the full speaker lineup and register at recode.net slash events. We'll see you there very soon. Nick, warm in this room. Your money guy just left. Now you can have a real conversation. What did you really want to say when he – well, I guess he's going to listen to this anyway. But you said proudly before you hadn't taken money. You went and got money. Had you not been sued by Hulk Hogan, Terry Bollea, would you not be taking money? I've, I've been thinking about this recently and I wonder. It's not sure yet. But I wonder whether we'll look back at like this whole period and, and actually think of the Hulk Hogan lawsuit as something that was painful to go through was unfair in a way, but which put us on a better path, that something that prompted decisions that we should have taken before. Um, so I think, I'm not sure how much if this was prompted by Hulk. I think it's the right decision in any case. And maybe one day I'll be thanking Hulk for having pushed us in this direction uh, to open up to the outside world a bit more and open up to outside capital. So before it wasn't good to take outside capital, you were proud of the fact you hadn't taken any money. Now you're proud that you have taken it because what does it do for – besides the actual having the cash in the bank, which may go to Terry Bollea, uh, what does that do for you? What is bringing in that extra money do <coughs> I th- for you? I think it's – first of all, it gives more confidence and security and a greater ability to take business risks that you should be taking than when it was a self-funded organization. Every single dollar we spent was a dollar that we made. Uh, I'm proud of what we achieved like that. We had 10 years of double-digit 
growth. Um, we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. N- nobody else has done this. Literally nobody else has created a media company of this kind of scale through hard work and flair. But the next phase of the media is going to be more capital intensive. Uh, there's going to be consolidation, clearly. And we need deep-pocketed backers behind us in order to do what we So you need the money to, to buy, you need the money to build? Uh, I think our practice has been typically to build. You know, we're not necessarily – we don't have the kind of experience of consolidation that Jim Bankoff and Vox have. And there's a particular skill set uh, required with that. We're good at finding talents and launching things. Uh, and so I think we'd like to do probably more launches like the launch of Adequate Man in 2015, the Deadspin men's lifestyle site, which has been very successful for us. Uh, so I think, I think that's, that's one of the things we'd like to do. Uh, and you know, video and international markets, if you want to do them properly, are more expensive than… But you mentioned consolidation, which made me think, oh, he's, he's in the market to buy Brian Lamb's company or something like that. <laughs> Brian used to work for you at Gizmodo. He's founded Wirecutter. Uh, uh, Wirecutter is a, is a very good partner for us, and we're looking to deepen that relationship. Um, but I don't think Brian is for sale, at least not right the, now. Yeah, he's, he's, he's doing a great job. We should talk a bit because um, normally being sued by Terry Bollea slash Hulk Hogan for running a sex tape would be this main story for any given media company in the year. But that was one of your lesser stories, I think, of the last year because you, you had the entire – I don't know. What's the best way of describing what happened to you last summer? Do you have a phrase for it? We did a story that a lot of people internally, including me, didn't agree with, a story that we felt went over the line. You hired <coughs> a publishing and, executive and you said he's having a There was a publishing executive who was married with children and we ran a story based on allegation by gay porn star. Uh, it's a story that I didn't agree with. I didn't think it was really a good manifestation of our ethos. And so I ordered it taken down. It was a, it was a media spat. It was interesting to a, a few hundred or a few thousand people in the New York media bubble. Yeah, the, uh, people, the people that Gawker used to sort of write for in his long sense eclipse. But and I got to say, before we go on to what happened afterwards, when that story came out, yeah. you were in such a sort of position, the way you were positioning yourself in advance of the Hulk Hogan trial, because that was about to be start, yeah. I thought, oh, this is Nick doubling down. This is Nick saying, not only are we going to show you Hulk Hogan's penis and then copulating. We're going to out some executive you've never heard of, by the way, because we want to we want to make it clear that there's no privacy. I thought this was a you sort of uh, made a, a Denton-esque sort of stunt, and I was shocked to find out that not only did you not approve of the story, you hadn't really barely seen it, or I guess you said that you had seen it, but you hadn't paid attention to it. No, I'd heard that we were working on it. I right. didn't see what the point of the story was, right. and that you know, this was not a public figure or suddenly not a public aspect of his life. No, I think it's actually precisely because the Hogan story about a major public figure, about behavior that he had been very public about himself. It's precisely because it's important to cover stories like that, that it's also important to draw the line and to say that not everybody and not every aspect of everybody's life is equally subject to scrutiny. Because I I don't believe that the public or I or any reasonable person believes that we want all aspects of all of our lives to be out there in public. It's not the social support for that. This seems very reasonable. Reasonable to me. You order the story taken down, and then it turns out that this upsets a, a big chunk of your staff. A couple editors quit. There's a whole parade of former Gawker employees saying the old Nick Denton would have never have done this. The old Nick Denton would tell us to write stories like this. And it seemed like that story to me exposed sort of a rift between you 
Nick Denton, 2015, 2016, and some older version of Gawker, at least a different conception of Gawker. Is that, is that fair? You know, when things used to spill out maybe 10 years ago, so I've been thinking about this quite, quite a bit. Well, you know, why does the reception change? And yeah, I think certainly when it comes to leaks on the internet, somebody getting hacked, some tapes some photographs, some text exchanges, leaking out, getting onto a blog, it seemed more innocent a decade ago that it was, oops, something leaked on the internet. Somebody didn't maintain their uh, proper security and they got, they got hacked and some important or interesting thing was exposed. I don't think we're in that same situation now. I, th- I think the, the climate has changed, uh, that when the Ashley Madison hack happened, there was a story that we absolutely took the lead on, both in explaining how Ashley Madison was itself kind of a fraud with many of the women being bots, kind of constructs. Uh, but also we didn't – we published the Josh Dogger revelation that he, a family values spokesman, had been on, on Ashley Madison. But I don't think there was the will internally nor the support of our readership to publish hundreds of thousands or millions of identities of people who were involved in Ashley Madison. That is the dividing line as obvious as if they're famous and or if their activity privately contradicts what they do professionally or in their public life, that's fair game. If Again, back to the executive who, again, most people who work in New York media couldn't identify – is that the dividing line? You, no one knows who this guy is, so we shouldn't be exposing his public life. But if he was the CEO of that company or more prominent, maybe he's fair game. I, th- I think in order for us to, f- to really have a right to comment, it needs to be a public aspect of somebody's life. So it's something that they have talked about in the past – upon which we wish to comment. Or maybe there are some facts which have emerged that contradict what they've said publicly. Uh, and so I, I don't think that every aspect of a public figure's life is equally open to scrutiny. Just because you have a C in your title does not mean that somebody else has the right to inquire into every aspect of your sex life. If you talk about your sex life all the time, on talk radio, in the media, uh, if you use your family or sex life as part of your character, as part of your marketing, as part of your personal brand, then I think other people have got a right to comment. One of the fascinating things I thought watching that discussion afterwards was the people who worked at Gawker or still work at Gawker saying, Nick Denton has no right to take down that story, that he shouldn't be able to do that. From my perspective, if you literally own the website, you can say whatever you want. You can take the story down. It seems to be not a big deal. Were you to spike a story like that today, does this current staff – by the way, you've had a significant turnover. Does this current staff say, all right, it's, it's Nick's publication. He can do what he wants or do they expect to have a, a vote? I think we established with the takedown of that particular story that even for Gorka, there are limits. There is a line. There are stories that are fair to run. And it's your line. And there are stories that are not fair to run. And, and it's a line that we can discuss. But when a story so clearly goes over the line uh, as that story in the summer, yes, it will be taken down or it will hopefully never be published in the first place. And people who aren't cool with that, uh, like writers who aren't cool with that, uh, have many other places where they could write um, medium blogs, open platforms. There are many places where people can express themselves. Uh, I don't feel the need for us to fund, sponsor, publish uh, every single thought that anybody uh, that works here has. 
So you have that story. You have the staff revolt. You fast forward, and you end up. We had two people resign over Mm. a story that actually didn't reflect that. You had a lot of energy expended on your internal Slack. Um, How about that? You know what? We had probably about the same amount of internal communication about something that happened here as um, any other organization. The difference here at Gorka Media is that we're a transparent organization and we write about journalists and that journalists write about us. So you had a lot we, of, we, we, get, we get a lot more attention. You had a lot of scrutinized transparency. How about yes. that? Um, I, I, I'd, I'd accept that description. Uh, and I've got to say, I'm actually I'm very proud of how open we are. I mean, we pay a price for it. It makes it harder to manage in some ways. Makes means that managers have to be a little bit more careful about what they say at an all-hands meeting, that you know, there is a presumption that information wants to be free, yeah. that things that are said will spread. And I think ultimately that's a healthier place for a company to be in than for people to live in fear that they're going to be fired if they speak out of turn. Uh, I, I don't want to live in that kind of world. I don't want to work for that kind of company. So where I was getting to was you've had a lot of change at this company. You have a different COO, you have a different ad guy, now you've taken on money. And it's all happened within the last year, within the last 12 months. So what have you learned in the last 12 months that you didn't see a year ago? The importance of having both strong figures in management that I can talk with and consult with and that can argue with me uh, and having the investment process has been very healthy. It's forced us to take what we do and to boil it down for an external audience that doesn't have a particularly kind of long concentration span. If you want to define what you are, what you stand for, in our case, you know, honest conversation about the topics that people really care about. Seven media brands which are, uh, have very much defined the spaces that they occupy. That is something that came out very much from this public exposure of 2015, uh, but above all from the investment round and having to digest our message for an external audience. Google, I would love to have the old Nick Denton come translate the new Nick Denton and say, no, this is what he's really saying. This is, this is the part you're missing here. Goku is an island. It is an island to a large extent. We are not as corrupt as many other media companies. I won't say we're completely pure, but our writers cannot be easily English, English. They call it nobbled. It's hard for a publicist to twist arms or to take care of a piece that's in the works. Our writers are free and they write freely. Uh, We were an island and... The risk of being an island is, that, okay, you're less corruptible, but you can also get a bit insular. I'd like to think that we're less insular than we were. Let's pull back from the, the island um, and look at the globe, how about mm-hmm. that tortured metaphor. We talked a year ago on stage. Um, you and I talked right after I talked to Chris Cox as Facebook was starting to do this instant article thing. They were just sort of about to sort of announce it officially. And there was a lot of hand-wringing about, you know, is Facebook going to eat the web? And what if everyone publishes their articles on Facebook, then what's the role of a publisher? Again, fast forward to a year later, it seems like everyone now has completely accepted the idea that not only will everyone publish all their articles on, on Facebook, they'll do the same at Snapchat, they'll do the same at Apple News. The notion that your future as a publisher is no longer your own website, it's, think, it's someone else's I think the bu- I think the BuzzFeed thesis here, which is that you exist wherever your readers are, I think the BuzzFeed thesis has been widely accepted. I think the, and so does that mean you accept it at Gawker? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, the, but the, I'm reading most of your stuff face, at Gawker.com, right? Facebook Instant Articles were going all in on. And if there is, I see this as being really a battle between Facebook and the ad tech. So you're going to publish all your articles on Facebook? Facebook and some articles. You'll do, you're doing that or you're about to do that? Yes. You will do that. Yeah. 
it's happening. It's it's, ha- it's, it's, it's happening. Look, who is best positioned in this world to target ads against? categories of users. Who knows the most about those users? Who can supply the most relevant ads? And in a way that doesn't degrade the user experience. I think Facebook is in contrast to much of the ad tech ecosystem. It's a coherent strategy. And I think they can provide a better experience both when a story is viewed on Facebook, but also potentially when a story is viewed on our website. Uh, I don't think we would be averse to Facebook you know, supplying a, you know, acting almost like a network or an exchange, you know, on our mobile sites, for instance, they can provide, I think, in partnership with publishers, they can provide a this better This is a experience. shift for you, though, right? Because you used to say, I think, yeah. yeah absolutely. You, you, so when did that shift happen for you? Because you, I think a year ago you said, I don't want to hand over all uh, uh, what, you know, what, my Facebook. My biggest, I, I was actually totally into Facebook from the very, very get-go. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I actually... You like Facebook as a distributor, but not as the people who were going to control your, your publishing I, fate. It, at the point at which, I, and the, this might have been a conjunction of Facebook with our traffic bonus system. But at the point at which I felt that we were writing stories for Facebook, there was a risk that we would become another Facebook mill if we didn't watch out. That was where we drew a line. And and I am very glad that we are not a Facebook mill. I'm glad that we have a distinctive editorial proposition that you can recognize a Deadspin story and you can recognize a Jalopnik story and you can recognize a Gizmodo story. It has a distinct style. It has a distinct credibility. That doesn't mean that there's no problem with a reader, a fan of Gizmodo, reading a Gizmodo story uh, on Facebook Instant Articles. It loads fast. The words are good. The pictures are good. <laughs> the, the ads are relevant. Do you make as much money when someone views a, a Facebook article? I think we'll be in a much better position than many publishers, just given that our costs are relatively low, our reach is large, um, that we're a more efficient content So it sounds producer. like you'll make less per view, but you'll, you'll make we'll, it up we'll, on we'll volume? Be, we can operate in that world. I think it'll be harder for many, many publishers to operate in that world. And I, and I think you'll see the rates on Facebook probably exceeding the rates from ad exchanges or ad networks. Uh, so uh, I, th- I think it will, uh, it will create a higher baseline for ad revenue um, per page. And then on top of that, it still leaves open the possibility and the potential for premium advertising packages, integrated programs, which is where I think one will see the rest of the growth. So is this you saying, look, if someone reads a Gawker or a Deadspin article on Facebook, they're still going to get that it's a Gawker Deadspin article? Or is this you just saying, look, it's the way of the world. I've got no choice. I'm going to do it and I'm going to make the best of it. I think it's, first of all, this is happening. Just like it's happening, get with it. It's gravity. It's gravity, and it's a better form of gravity than the ad tech mess. I, I barely understand the ecosystem or the language. It degrades the combination of ad tech vendors all piled on a page, degrade the experience. Uh, and I think Facebook, if they can create an integrated experience for users and work with publishers in a coherent way like they are with instant articles. Uh, I wish them a lot of success. So in a year, you've gone from being a Facebook skeptic to all in. You've taken Russian investment money. You've turned over your staff. You're exaggerating here. I'm a writer. It's my job. (laughs) It's a big year. When I visit you again in a year, what's going to change? I think this is the company that we are and that we will be. It's it's a company that has authenticity at its core, uh, that cares about stories and storytelling and news and the truth and all of those old-fashioned things that uh, these Facebook content mills have actually largely forgotten. I, I think most journalists, they look at the internet, they look at certainly general news on the internet, and they see a wasteland of 
empty, smarmy, lowest common denominator content. It's very disappointing for most people who believed that the internet was going to make things better, allow people to be better informed and connect with each other. And we're still internet idealists. And I believe that in on properties like Jezebel and on properties like Gizmodo, when you go deep into people's interests, uh, that they can actually interact with each other in a better way. And they can help each other discover stories and learn more about topics and explore products and explore the news together, writers and readers. It's, you're looking at me like... <laughs> no, I love it. I, lo- I love the tag, like Nick Denton, Internet Idealist. It's great. I, I've always been that. And, I, and actually, I think it's not just me. I think most people who did interesting things in internet media were idealists. The, the reason why they went into the internet, the reason why they abandoned whatever they were doing before was because of the freedom to express yourself, the freedom to reach people without a huge infrastructure, you know, without a layer of middle management, like without printing presses, without all of that friction. And uh, it's an incredibly liberating idea, the idea that people can talk with each other and can broadcast those ideas to millions of people in an instant at zero cost. It seems as enthralling to me now as it ever did 10 years ago. I love the fact that you are an internet idealist. We've got you all wound up and we're going to leave it there. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. It's good hanging out. Nick Denton, Internet Idealist. Thanks so much for letting me record this at your fancy new studio, by the way. I appreciate that. I think it's our first remote interview. Uh, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you enjoyed listening to this interview as much as I did conducting it, you should subscribe. You can catch up on previous episodes and be the first to listen to new ones, all on recode.net slash decode. If you're listening to this, you probably already know that Recode Decode is twice a week, every Monday and Thursday, and now there is even more free audio content coming to you. It's called Too Embarrassed to Ask, hosted by Kara Swisher and Lauren Good. It's awesome. Every Friday, Kara and Lauren answer your tech questions, review the largest gadgets. There might be a guest there as well. You should check it out. Third episode is tomorrow, January 29th. You can subscribe to iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. Kara's back on Monday with an awesome guest. I'll be here on Thursday with an awesome guest. We have many awesome guests coming your way, recording a bunch of cool stuff this week. See you soon. This has been Recode Decode, hosted by Kara Swisher, powered by digital media. For more hard-hitting interviews with insiders from the worlds of tech, media, and politics, subscribe to Recode Replay on iTunes, featuring candid conversations with leading voices like AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, Goldman Sachs' CIO Marty Chavez, the team behind the hit TV show Empire, Shark Tank investor Mark Cuban, and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton. They're all on Recode Replay.